0: COVID-19 is surging uncontrollably throughout India, disrupting big cities like Mumbai and devastating rural areas where there's extreme poverty and hardly any health care. The heart-rending images of funeral pyres set up in public parks, burning an endless line of bodies, is only a glimpse into the tragedy unfolding across the country. The pro-nationalist government of Narendra Modi is partly to be blamed for not stopping the Kumbh Mela, a Hindu religious celebration that brought 2.5 million to the Ganges River, and for carrying on with political rallies that attracted masses of people. But far more than hyper-nationalism is responsible for this catastrophe. During the 20 years that I reported on health for the Times of India, and trained reporters to cover this speed. I saw how the health sector was neglected during India's growth and development.
1: That was reporter, writer, and editor Kalpana Jain reading from her first opinion essay entitled, India's COVID-19 Catastrophe Reflects Years of Neglecting Its Health System. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. At Cytiva, we understand that the health of people and the health of the planet are deeply interconnected. We recognize that integrating sustainability into our business will limit our impact on the environment and help us realize our vision of a world where access to life-changing therapies transforms human health. Learn how we are seizing sustainability at cytiva.com/sustainability. That's c y t i v a dot com forward slash sustainability. Welcome to the First Opinion podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. Welcome to the podcast, Kalpana. Thank you, Beth. As we emailed back and forth over the past few days, you told me that you grew up in a small town in India called Meerut, near Delhi. You know, I can still recall the sights and sounds and sometimes even the smells of the neighborhood I grew up in on the south side of Chicago. When you close your eyes and think about where you grew up, what comes to mind?
0: Oh, it was, you know, it was in India emerging from um, really the British colonial rule. I was born, what, two decades after that, and it was still a very young country. Uh, what, what really comes to my mind is the education that we were put through at that point of time. It was really post-colonial. Colonial. These were convent schools. Um, Catholics, I went to a Catholic school. And the, you know, the idea of discipline, what it means to be a girl, a woman, that was drilled into us. Can you believe it? We used to have moral science classes early in the morning.
1: (laughs) So I went to 12 years of Catholic school myself, and I know pretty much what you're talking about here. You worked for many years covering health for the Times of India. What nudged you to take on the health beat, which... You told me many journalists in India don't exactly consider a plum job.
0: Yeah. um, (laughs) I don't know. My heart was in it from the minute I started to do it. So, uh, you know, when you're doing the city, I started covering the city as a reporter. And on health, there were all these stories that I just wanted to tell. It It was like I could look into everything, into society, into, you know, inefficiencies, into malfunctioning of the government, into corruption into what was happening economically, into people's lives, into poverty, into inequality. Just the whole world came together for me through that window of health.
1: Do you remember your first story or the first story that really made an impact on you?
0: Um, I Yeah, I remember. I remember the first story that just got a lot of readers and A lot of uh, angry comments from the administration.
1: Oh, you know, you're on the right track then.
0: (laughs) Right. And all I did was something very simple. So there's this, um, you know, it's uh, consider it like the MGS, the Mass General Hospital of India. It was the All India Institute of Medical Sciences, you know, very big research hospital, everything world class. And I stood in a line there just awaiting, like, how many hours does it take to get to the doctor? If you're you're a heart patient, how many hours will it take you?
1: Great idea.
0: (laughs) And I stood in that line, and I did the whole reporting, and just how many hours it took me, and finally, what what did I get after that? And it just got just so many readers because people, um, you know, just um, related to the story. And whereas the government and the administration just came down heavily on us and saying, What is this? I mean, cues, we call it cues, right? It's British English. Cues are just everywhere. This is India. This is is what happens. (laughs) What's the big deal? And we are saying these are heart patients. These are people who are having heart pain. And they're standing there with no help, no water, nothing.
1: You're now living and working in the U.S., actually not far from me in the Boston area. Do you still have family in India?
0: Yes, I have a lot of family in India. And... It's just awful.
1: I was going to ask how they're doing in this perilous time.
0: So, I mean, I'm talking to them pretty much every day. And my immediate family is fine or people have fallen sick and recovered. And I worry about those who haven't fallen sick yet. I keep my fingers crossed. But in my extended family, there have been several deaths. You know, a young mother's died. There have been others. And just overall, there have been so many people who I know And I just have to open Facebook and I see names. I have to talk to friends and I see names. One of my friends who was helping during my COVID, which I got last March, and she's come down, she's a doctor and 40% of her lungs are affected. So it's really brutal.
1: That must be hard to watch from a distance.
0: I feel very helpless. I just feel helpless. I feel privileged and I feel helpless.
1: Just before starting this conversation, I took a look at the numbers, and and they're quite staggering. India, with its 20 million cases and 226,000 deaths, is second only to the United States. And yesterday, which was May 4th, India had the highest number of recorded deaths. Um, It's just, uh, yikes. Um, When you're... Talking with people in the U.S. about the losses that families are experiencing in India, what are some of the misconceptions or presumptions you've seen people make about what's happening there?
0: You know, it's interesting because when I talk to people in the U.S., some of them feel, well, the media blows things out of proportion. And so people have said to me, you know, New York wasn't that bad, but we felt the media was blowing it out of proportion. And here I'm saying, I don't think the media is even reporting enough. I mean, journalists have died. It's just so hard to report at this point of time, and you aren't really getting the full extent of what's going on in India. I've been talking to friends and journalists, and it is so bad at this point of time. I'm I'm told that in some places it lit, it's literally the the stench of death. I mean, there are families, entire families, who are gone, and there's no one to remove the bodies. So when they you know feel the smell, that's when people are breaking in. Or even in Delhi, what people are saying is like they can literally feel the cremation air. There is just so much of it. It's like really feeling and smelling the dead. So it's, it's way worse, I would say.
1: From your communication with family and friends, were you aware of a crisis building before most of us heard about it in India?
0: Well, I mean, the minute I saw, and as an editor, I actually commissioned a piece as an editor with the conversation, as you know, um, I commissioned a piece on the Kumbh Mela because the minute I saw that, I was like, this is disaster. This is complete disaster. And even when they said, oh, we'll do the COVID test and we'll get people to do their face coverings, I was like, these are millions of people who are going to gather. How will anyone implement anything? And I know, you know, when these stories are put out in the western media it feels like every hindu goes there or people go to wash their sins or you know whatever the language is the reality is that these are poor people most of them you know hmm. it's not people like me or my family my friends who would go to these places but it's it's often the poor the unemployed people from the villages which is just, you know, they're following a tradition. This is what their family's done. This is what they know what to do. And they would be going there because this is tradition.
1: Can you describe that ceremony or that celebration?
0: It's called uh, the Kumbh Mela. And uh, it happens every 12 years. And what actually what the Modi government did was pushed it by a year, actually made it a year earlier, which is was disastrous because there was some astrological indication I think it was political, but anyway, um, so people come for this. There are a lot of religious, you know, Hinduism is so vast with so many beliefs. Even I don't understand all of it. And there are a lot of these religious sects that come um, during that. And the idea is to, you know, this congregation happens near a river and it rotates, you know, uh, depending on where it's being held. There are different cities. So this time it was held in Haridwar which is a North Indian city by the Ganges, and millions of people come to take a dip in the river. Uh, Broadly, that's what it is. Uh, And they, you know, it goes on for, I think, about a month.
1: Wow. India seemed to manage an early surge of COVID-19 in the midsummer, and then cases dropped to almost nothing. It was really quite impressive. And I think that's what prompted Prime Minister Narendra Modi to boast about what India had done at the World Economic Forum in Davos in January. Any thoughts on how India managed to really do such a terrific job then?
0: Well, we know at that time that, uh, you know, Narendra Modi imposed just a lockdown. And that was also a pretty rash decision in the way he imposed it. I don't know if you saw the pictures and the stories at that time because there were all these migrant workers who were away from their homes and these were suddenly stranded. People didn't have a way to get back. There was no buses. There were no transportation. And there were people walking miles and miles and miles to get back home. It was just suddenly people were given no time. You know, he managed to control the spread of the virus. But, you know, there was other trauma at that time. People didn't have food but the civil society was very active. They were able to distribute a lot of food, uh, help people. And this time, that's been pretty much impossible. Uh, you know, they're trying, but it's it's not like
1: last time. Oh, it's, it, it seems to be just overwhelming this time. And so some people, as you wrote, some people said that um, hypernationalism uh, played a role. But you have a different take on it. And you're kind of, in your essay, you pointed the finger at India's, shall we call it, eroding healthcare system.
0: Yes. And not that I want to take uh, Prime Minister Modi and his government off the hook, but I do think this has just such a long history in how each successive government has not paid attention to healthcare. I mean, I've covered it for so many years. It was like, Um, you know, never an issue of national importance. It wasn't an area where much money was put. So India's traditionally had like what, just about 1% of its GDP spending on health. Um, And at the time of independence, I'll say in 1947, you know, that was Jawaharlal Nehru's government. And I will say going back at that time, the vision was very different. The vision was that the government needs to support healthcare. And, you know, they set up um, the infrastructure to be able to do that. But over, over the years, that completely crumbled. Um, the poor had nothing. And moreover, it, it was like a privatization started to happen in healthcare. And healthcare started to get concentrated, um, you know, the specialized healthcare started to get concentrated in bigger cities, so the metros, Delhi, Mumbai, uh, Kolkata, and so, so on and so forth. So smaller towns, villages, it's like you have just removed even preventive services or, um, you know, uh, things that didn't require that kind of specialized care and brought in a concentrated health care in the hand of four private hospitals which, by the way, are not regulated. How can you have that?
1: So I, I read that there are uh, about 8,000 towns and 630,000 villages in India. What was healthcare supposed to look like in those smaller places?
0: The vision was that each village, I think about 1,000 people, would be having a primary health center. And that would be the, or each unit, let's not say each village, each unit. And that would be the place where you would go for any preventative service or the first line or, you know, simple fevers, virals, et cetera, et cetera. The next level, and uh, I may be off with the numbers, but I think it was like for a population of 10,000, which was a hospital, uh, with fairly specialized services, but not like a tertiary care. And then came the tertiary care, really, really specialized, high-end hospitals, which would you know take care of uh, uh, more aggressive treatments, or you know if you needed a heart transplant,
1: let's say, or,
0: or you know other forms of very specialized care.
1: But that system didn't evolve the way it probably should have, it sounds like?
0: No, not at all. People, uh, doctors didn't want to go into rural areas. So there's always been a problem of that. Uh, There's just been a shortage of also um, medical professionals and also medical professionals who would go outside the city.
1: Well, we see the same thing here a little bit, perhaps not on that scale. Through your reporting, what did you learn about India's health system that really surprised you?
0: Oh, I think, I mean, every every story was a surprise. That's why I could do those stories. So let me bring up a story, which will always stay with me. It's a very, very sad story. So once while covering health, I came across this woman. Um, and she was at the all India Institute of Medical Sciences, by the way, coming from all the way from her village in Uttar Pradesh. And she had brought with her two children, I think, who had diphtheria. And... They needed to be admitted to the hospital. But back in her village, she had left behind her cow and three children. So the choice for her was, could she spend the resources that she had on feeding those two children or go back to the village, save those resources and save those three children and the cow on whom the rest of her family depended. And guess what? What is the choice she makes? she goes back so that is what the health system is like for the poor and you know that's i don't know if i call it a surprise i call it a shock so today when i see um you know i like the public clamor for better health services but what really gets me angry is that people never demanded this no one demanded this of any government that improved the health services But the poor were dying all along. I mean, they, um, as I wrote in my essay, they didn't, their children didn't get oxygen. The far-flung hospitals were never cared for, Um, you know, in states that um, where the human, the social indices are really bad. And you go into those hospitals and it's like, who would want to go there is the question that I would ask.
1: Why do you think there wasn't a a public uprising and clamor for better health care?
0: Well, you know, that goes into really politics and how elections uh, are run, held, or how politicians manage to veer public attention towards different issues, how the poor don't have a voice very often. I mean, civil society is changing, and I hope it keeps changing, but a lot of the elections, at least at the national level, go into many different issues, and it could be just caste politics. But in terms of development, you know, people are looking at a lot of other basics. They're asking for drinking water. They're asking for schools. It's just such a long line of demands that probably they don't think that this is also something they should ask for.
1: You've covered pandemics in the past. How is this one different?
0: In some ways, actually, it's the same because the misinformation is there. Um, The lack of trust is there. It's lack of information is there. But in the way this is different, there's nothing being on this scale. You know, I covered HIV AIDS. uh, I covered plague, which wasn't a pandemic really. Uh, But the scale of this, the horror of this, the epic proportions of this, the mismanagement of this, the just complete cruelty at every level. I mean, I've seen cruelty, you know, when it came to the AIDS epidemic. But this is just, the scale of this is so, so, so different. And it's so visible. I mean, in the past when I covered HIV, it's it wasn't that visible. So you had to convince people there is a pandemic here. There is a pandemic here. But this is happening. I mean, people are dropping dead.
1: So it sounds like you may have almost seen this coming uh, before others did because of how you were able to see India at other times. Is that true?
0: Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I, I'll tell you this, that... Uh, I was looking, sitting here in Boston, just looking at India's map and and looking at the number of cases that had been reported of COVID. And what I saw was that, you know, it's a federal system. So in the states that are ruled by the current ruling party, the BJP, the cases were much lower. And then I looked at a state um, in the eastern part of India, Bihar, where I have gone and done reporting from. And I saw that the state, the cases were really low. I mean, that's the state with the worst possible healthcare system. So my head was like, this is not possible. Something's off here. I never quite believed the numbers to tell you for sure. And the minute, I mean, there were the election rallies happening, but the the scariest thing was the comb, the religious gathering.
1: You describe sort of the United States of America with... um with differences from state to state, uh, lack of trust, misinformation. Uh, someone mentioned that that misinformation through WhatsApp and other social media platforms really was rampant and contributed to this. Is that what may have happened?
0: Well, just the misinformation through WhatsApp has been going on for a long time. Uh, you know, it happened with the uh, I don't know, you you might recall that as this government came into power, there were all these lynchings, particularly of Muslim pe- people. And there was just so much that was uh, going on through WhatsApp about information that was being conveyed to people. In this particular case, I think people somehow got convinced looking at um, the signals that the government was putting out and also saying that, uh, you know, we've won this battle, there is no epidemic. And I know my own family members, you know, every time I would talk to them, they they would be like, yeah, we are traveling. And I was like, isn't there COVID? They would say, COVID? No, there's no COVID here. There were weddings happening within, you know, my friends. And these are people, I would say, who are educated, informed. And if that was the level of uh, awareness amongst the educated and the middle class, you can imagine what's going on in the country then.
1: Sometimes I think that people don't really listen to government, but all you have to do is look at the responses to COVID-19 and you realize how carefully people do listen to government for for better or for worse.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. And I think the, the leadership really models for people. And in the beginning, I thought, though I have no love for Modi, and I thought maybe he's doing the right thing. At least he's wearing the mask, you know, he's taking that arm of his and get taking the vaccine short in public view and maybe encouraging others. So those things seemed right. And I think at until that point of time, people were wearing masks, people were interested in taking the vaccine. But then the whole system just collapsed because you don't have enough vaccines. And of course, by now, it's, uh, I mean, people stopped wearing the mask at some point of time because they thought there's no COVID
1: you were able to to basically see two responses, two national responses to the same pandemic. How do you think India and the U.S. stack up against each other? <laughs>
0: um, in some ways, it's different and some ways the same. So here is what I would say. So when I look at the U.S., <laughs> this is my view, and I see educated people not wearing masks, and I say you know, wear the masks, you're aware, you're educated, you know this. It's, it's a lot about more of an ideology and it's more about we are individuals, we'll take our own decisions. Whereas I would say in India, it's lack of awareness. It's a lot of poverty. Uh, it's just that people just don't know and um, or are just careless. But it's not about individualism.
1: You were reporting on HIV AIDS when it was sweeping through India. It sounds like that really had an impact on you. I know that you wrote a book about it. What was it about that pandemic or epidemic or however we'll call it that really, you know, engaged you?
0: So, I think I saw a responsibility as a journalist, as a health reporter, and I would find that people don't want to believe that there is HIV within my newsroom, by the way, you know, my editors would say, I'd rather, you know, see a movie on HBO than read an AIDS story. And they would say, oh, where is HIV AIDS in your mind? And there I was going out into the field and seeing people who were getting infected. And a lot of it was just because they also didn't believe that HIV existed. And I thought, you know, one has a responsibility as a journalist to, to show what's going on.
1: If you were still in India and still a, a health reporter, what stories would you be digging into right now?
0: You know, one story I want to know is uh, this whole mess about oxygen. Who produces it? How much? How does it, you know, go to different places? Why don't these big hospitals have enough oxygen concentrators? I mean, what's the whole... What's the whole deal there? I don't know. I mean, I'll start, I'll start from scratch there. I want to know that in the past that these children have died. Why did those hospitals didn't? I mean, it's not such a big deal. Um, they should have those. And if those basics are missing, then what else is missing?
1: And those deaths that you mentioned, that was with a pneumonic plague, wasn't it?
0: No, that was with Jap- uh, with Japanese encephalitis. So Ah. we have that as an outbreak each year. It happens in um, the state of Uttar Pradesh, and it happens in certain villages that are infested by that mosquito that that carries um, virus. And year after year, those deaths happen. And year after year, children die. And these hospitals aren't equipped to treat them. So, you know, that's one story I want to read.
1: It's one of those terrible stories of black markets also and the exorbitant prices that people were paying to get oxygen for loved ones who would die without it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the level of black marketing in India at this point of time is at a level which I don't know what to call it. It's beyond um, inhumane. So... uh, you know, just makes you wonder, what are we as human beings? And do we feed on everything, every misery? I, I,
1: I share your frustration in that regard. But then you balance that against, you know, the wonderful heroic, humane stories that you must have run across when you were writing and reporting.
0: Yes, I totally agree with you. And I'm so glad you brought it up. And even now, it's all these, you know, when I talk to my family, that's what they talk about, all these wonderful people, or just young people, or others or NGOs who are just out and about. it's really dangerous for them, but they are going out there spending their own money doing that, even poor people. So uh, my sister was talking about it. You you probably don't know the concept of a rickshaw puller, but this is like a hand-pulled cart on which people sit. And these people, one, they labor so hard and they earn very little money. And she was talking about this man who had put in all his savings, whatever he had, to save whoever he could. So that's the other side of humanity that you see
1: you know i i guess that's the wonderful duality of humanness
0: totally and we have to remember that you know even as you get frustrated or angry about all the other stuff that you see
1: so you're now the senior religion and ethics editor for the us branch of the conversation which is a global nonprofit news organization that publishes articles written by academic experts for the general public that seems like a pretty big switch from uh, health reporting what What prompted you to do that?
0: Oh, Pat, you know what? After I'd done years and years of health reporting, seen so much of suffering, and in my own life also I was, you know, threatened, threatened, all all kinds of things. I think I got to a point of complete burnout, complete burnout, that I couldn't look at one more hospital. I couldn't look at one more person dying. And that's when... um, I decided to come back to university and uh, study. And where my heart and head took me, and this time I listened to my heart, took me was uh, to the study of religion. And I wanted to look at gender in India. And I wanted to see, um, you know, how religion was keeping women where they are or how it was being used by, you know, patriarchal um, sort of uh, interpretations of religion, which happens in every religion. And um, I found a lot of peace, I would say, in that. It's not easy to do health reporting for such a long time and see what I've seen in my life. So maybe I'm ready to go back and look at it again. (laughs) And if I was right now in India, I would be out there doing that reporting. But I think I needed those years of just stepping away and doing something different.
1: What would you tell people listening to this conversation? What can they do? How can India be helped?
0: You know, I've been trying to find smaller NGOs uh, where I can send money. I I just think that money gets put into one big pot. Uh, Maybe it gets used. I'm not saying it doesn't get used, but I'm saying just, you know, through your friends, family, network, find good people, find who you can support, or even, you know, if you have friends and family there, just give them a call just to say you're here for them. I don't know if I'm able to do much. I feel very helpless these days. Uh, I wish I had more answers because I struggle myself with what else can I do. But just a human word at times matters.
1: Well, Kalpana, thank you so much for joining us today. Our prayers are with you and the folks in India as this struggle continues.
0: Thank you, Pat. And thank you, everyone. Um, This has been wonderful to talk to you and share all this, you know, pain, suffering, and also the, you know, the humanity of people who are trying to do some work there. So thank you for this opportunity. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Our senior producer is Alyssa Ambrose, and our executive producer is Rick Burke. I love to hear from listeners. Let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com, and please put podcast in the subject line. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time.